0: Say, I've got all these sermons out of this lesson and, and all of that, and it gets you fired up and you're ready to go, so we should be out at least by 3 o'clock this afternoon, you know, this morning. But anyway, appreciate Alan for being here and the work that he did. appreciate many of you for being able to be here. For every service, and we're thankful for that. no some were sick, no some had had to work, and different things and so uh, we encourage as we said in the bulletin to to go to the website to listen to the uh, lessons there. if you did not get to hear them, you can pull them up on the app uh, they're all there, so you're, you've got access to them, pass them on, pass them on to folks, let them know that that these resources are available that they can go there and listen not only to those sermons but others that that are presented here at the Midway congregation. I want to give you some disturbing numbers this morning as we uh, get up here and get going. Uh, let's back up here, uh, get back up to the first part of it. We're going to have all the blanks filled in. All right. Now, here back to the numbers. Twenty-four point, or 27.4 million. 27.4 million. That's a lot of children, isn't it? But that's the number of children living in the United States. According to the U.S. Census Bureau in 2012, twenty-seven point four million children are living in homes without their biological father being there. Whether the father has abandoned them, whether he's dead, or whatever it may be, 27.4 million children living in the United States of America do not have their biological father there. If you notice underneath that, it says 33% of children below the age of 18 do not have their biological father in their home. Now, to put that another way, it's like this. If you have three children lined up out here, every third child, one, two, every third child does not have his biological father living in his home. For every three children you see, one of them does not have his biological father living with him at, or her at their home. Here's another disturbing number, three million Three million reports of child abuse each year in the United States of America. Three million reports of child abuse in America each year. Three million reports of child abuse in America each year. Three million children abused each year. Now, there are some other numbers in regard to that a little over 18%, according again to the statistics that we can find filed with the government of the United States, a little over 18% of those reported cases of child abuse, it was the father in that uh, situation who abused their child. Whether it would be sexual or physical abuse in some other way, a little over 18% were abused by their father. Another 17, again a little bit over 17%, but uh, had either the father or, mo- or were abused by both the father and the mother. And so that works out to somewhere around 36% of children who are abused by a father, a father figure. You know that's a lot of children being abused, and especially by fathers in their homes. 27.4 million don't have one, and another 3 million are abused by the father that's living with them. And so when we look at that and we think about it, it, our nation is in a sad state of affairs. But you know what? This morning as I began to speak, I'm probably not speaking to a a father or or, uh, fathers who have abandoned their children who are not living there. You know, I'm probably not having that opportunity to speak to them. But I want to ask you a question this morning. If you had the opportunity to speak to a father who had left his ch- children, or, or one who, who had abused his children, what would you say? What would you tell them? What, what would you do to a person who had done that, who had left them or had abused them? You know, sometimes we think that abusing them in some way is worse than leaving them, and, and in reality, I'm sure that it is, but, but you know, it's still bad either way. What would you say? Again, this morning, I I probably don't have that opportunity to speak to fathers who are in that situation to to address those matters. But but you know what? I do have an opportunity to talk to fathers who are at home. I do have an opportunity to talk to to those who perhaps one day will be fathers,
1: those who, who know other fathers.
0: I have an opportunity to talk to you today. You know, as I think about it, I understand today is not Father's Day. Y'all thought I got messed up, didn't you? And you got a week ahead. I know it's next week, but I also know that I won't be here next week. And I know over the past few years, I've preached, you know, a little bit to mothers on Mother's Day. And because of the way that campaign falls, I'm always gone on Father's Day. So I don't get to preach to fathers on Father's Day. And I won't be able to do that this year, but I can start it a week early. Just because it's a week ahead of time doesn't mean that, that we can't address the matters of fathers. But, but as we do that this morning, as we think about that, where do we go? How do we, how do we learn what to be, what kind of father that we need to be? How do we learn to be a father that's worth keeping at home? You know, not just one who'll stay at home, but one who's worth keeping at home, who's worth being there and being with their children. And I know of no better resource than to go to God's Word, and, and probably no better writer, even though he himself was not a father than to turn to the Apostle Paul. Now the Bible makes it very clear that Paul was not a married man. In a number of passages in Scripture, we're able to determine that, but passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, chapter 9, verse number 5, Paul makes it clear that he's not a a married man, not a father, if you will. He is a father in, in the faith to a number of people, and especially mentioned, of course, are Timothy and Titus and, and the relationship that he has with them and teaching them to be workers and servants in the Lord's church. But, but Paul was not a married man, and yet even though he's not a married man and even though he hasn't had that first-hand experience of, of raising a child from, from being an infant, I think we can learn from Him because we can learn in the situation and in the way that He treated other people by observing the actions that He had toward those whom He loved. And so if that's what we want to do in the time that we have alighted this morning, we want to spend just a few minutes in dealing with that. And again, I know of no better place than to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and and to address the matter from from that passage. And so, what can we learn, especially beginning in verse number 7 of that passage? Tommy read from the beginning of the chapter, but what can we learn beginning in verse number 7 in regard to fathers today? Well, number one on our list, as Paul is presenting a picture of of a loving man, a gentle man, he, he, is a, he is presenting a picture of a father here. If you go down later in that verse, he, he, he actually speaks about how he treated them in regard to being a father. But, but Paul portrays a gentle, loving, and kind man. Look particularly at verse number 7 in that chapter. Paul says, "...but we were gentle among you." Like a nursing mother compares himself to a mother there, but like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That word gentle is is an interesting word, or at least as we go back and get the history of it, it's very interesting. A number of manuscripts, some of the oldest manuscripts we have, have a word in the original language. And and I'll just uh, mention that word. It's not going to be on a test or anything, but it's the word epios, because it's important to see uh, what we get here. It's the word epios. It's the word which means gentle or mild or kind. It's used again in the book by the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. At verse number 24 he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, it's translated by the word kind in that passage, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. You know, when we talk about the word gentle and the word kind, we get a picture of a man who is perhaps soft-spoken, one who is, who is easygoing and, uh, from, from that standpoint. But that's not the only word that's used. I said that some manuscripts have the word epios, other manuscripts in the original languages, some of the old ones as well, have a different word. It's the word nepios, there's one letter difference. It has what we would call an N in front of it, the word nepios, and so it's hard to tell uh, which manuscript is correct, the word nepios is a little bit different from the word epios. The word epios meaning gentle or kind in that way, but the word nepios means infant. It means infant. So Paul says we were like an infant among you. Now how could Paul talk about being like a baby among them? What What did he mean by that? Well, That word is used again in the New Testament. It's used in other places. But in particular, it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 at verse number 20. And I think from that passage, we can see how Paul might use that word nepios here in talking about one being gentle. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 at verse 20, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. And then watch this. He says, Be infants in evil. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. The same word that's translated infants, be infants in evil, is, is the possibility that you might see here in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so, again, it indicates, if we're using it from that standpoint, a mild-mannered person, a gentle person, a kind and loving kind person, of person, And so, as we look at it, that's the kind of man that, that Paul says he was among the people that he loved. Now, how does that relate to fathers? Look at Ephesians chapter 6 at verse number 4. Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 4, Paul again writes and says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Focus on the first part of that. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It's possible for fathers to provoke their children, isn't it? It's possible for them to provoke their children to anger. If it were not possible, Paul would not have warned against it, so it's indefinitely possible. And so when we look at it, we think about it, what does he mean by that? Let me see if I can help us out with that just a little bit. You know, there are some characteristics that abusive fathers have. And we don't have time to deal with all of them. Let me just deal with two of them this morning, though, in relation to what we're talking about here. One of the characteristics that abusive fathers have is they are authoritarian in the way that they handle things. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with exhibiting and displaying authority and being an authority figure. But what we're talking about here is they have some rigid expectations that are unbendable. They, they have the, uh, the kind of attitude that, that, you know, it's either my way or the highway. And, and, you know, they really don't have very much empathy toward the children or the family at all. And, and what's more, what we're actually dealing with here is that they use this, and what we might say is sort of an angry style. You know, it's like they're mad at their children all the time kind of thing, and so they exercise their authority in the family in that way. And that's not a good thing. You know, what happens is it comes out like this. Children begin to, to think that their parents expect them to be just little adults and, and, and not children. And so, you know, they grow up having a rebellious kind of attitude, a rebellious kind of spirit. They, they come to understand that when things are, are, are not going right, then Father's going to jump me. And the rest of the time, you know, all he's going to do is ignore me. And that's a problem that, that many children find in a, in a home. It's because of that authoritarian lifestyle that, that a parent has. Now understand this morning that, that parents have the right, they have the responsibility to demand obedience. But it's not the capricious exercise of authority that, that they're given. You see, Paul warns against the idea of, uh, of provoking the child to anger. And one of the ways that can be done is why this, by this authoritarian attitude that sometimes is displayed. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, at verse 21, Paul again addresses the matter. And there, as he writes about fathers, he, he, he talks about how that you're not to discourage, to dishearten, some translations say, your children. Sometimes it's done from that authoritarian standpoint. You know, that's the opposite of that gentle, kind, loving man, that infant kind of person that that Paul describes in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The authority is there, but the, the, the authority is to be exercised and displayed out of love. Which brings us to the second thing there, and it's they have also the characteristic of being unaffectionate which just doubles down on the authoritarian attitude and and makes it so much more difficult. The parents demand obedience, but they never exercise the the love. They never reach out. You know, I understand, fathers, that it's not always easy after a stressful day to come home from work being tired and be a kind, gentle, gentle, approachable person. But what Paul says is that's the kind of person we need to strive to be. Not losing the authority, not being just a child's best friend, always maintaining the, the upper hand, if you will, in the, in the relationship, because that's what God teaches us to do. But not one who's angry, not one who is, who is explosive, one who's gentle, one who's kind so when we're looking at it, Paul portrays the picture of a man. And that's the kind that he portrays. But let's move on this morning again as we're thinking about what Paul teaches us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We understand that Paul portrays a, a man who is personally and wholeheartedly involved. Look at verse number 8. Look at the words that Paul chooses to use. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. Paul's job was to preach the gospel. He was commissioned by Jesus to go and to teach and to preach. And he went, you know, many places uh, among the Gentiles where the gospel had not gone. Paul says to the Thessalonians, though, he says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. You see, Paul not only had a job to do, but Paul became wholeheartedly involved with the people whom he was sharing the gospel. His life intermingled with their life And they became intermeshed. The involvement was there. No wonder Paul could reach so many people and and be so, you know, so good at what he did in spreading the gospel. In the book of Genesis, chapter forty-four, verses thirty and thirty-one, you'll remember the story of. Of Joseph, and how he had been sold into slavery, how he had risen to being second in command in the nation of Egypt, second only to pharaoh himself, he had, he had been able to interpret the dreams and save the the nation from starving to death, and not just the nation but other nations around them from starving to death, and you remember the story about how Israel sent his sons, his his remaining sons, Jake, or rather Joseph, being one of those, the one who had been sold. He sent his other sons into Egypt to buy grain because they were in danger of being of starving to death. And you remember the story how it unfolds that, that Joseph sees them and he speaks with them and he doesn't tell them who he is and he asks them about another brother, his only full brother, that was still at home, that Jacob or Israel would not send with them. And, and you remember how that, that Joseph tells them, he said, unless you bring the younger son down here, I'm not going to sell you anything. I, I'm not going to give you any more food. You're just going to starve to death. Well, do you remember the argument that that Judah in particular begins to put up toward Joseph to tell him, you know, we can't bring him down here. Our Father will not allow it. It's within that argument that we read these words. In Genesis chapter 44, beginning in verse 30, Paul, or, or rather Moses, writes, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as... His life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Did you notice that phrase? His life is bound up in the boy's life. Now, Israel, or Jacob as he is known, he he had some problems and... And showing favorites with his sons, and that 's one of the reasons that, that Joseph was sold into slavery, his brothers became jealous, but there 's still nothing wrong with a father's life being bound up in the life of his child. You know another way of saying that that child means the world to me; he is my life is that speaks of involvement in the life of a father, something that we need to imitate, that we as fathers need to strive to do. I want to read you some sad words this morning. These words were printed in the spiritual sword back in 1984, April of 1984. Brother Foyle Smith is the one who wrote these words, paragraph. He says, I am haunted every time I hear in my thoughts our little boy say, Daddy, go with me to the football game tonight. The stadium was about a block from our house. I so often said, No, get so-and-so to go with you. I was usually doing something that wasn't that important at all. Here's a preacher. He's talking about his own memories. He says, I was usually doing something that wasn't that important at all. Maybe visiting some contrary old sore-headed critic who had stumped his toe two or three days before And I was already late in getting by to play sympathetic nursemaid. Think about that one for a minute. God in heaven, forgive me. How I would like to go back and hear that innocent little plea again. Daddy, will you go with me? I did a lot of good things. I wasn't altogether neglectful. But in some such important ways... I was. Fathers, don't get so wrapped up in hopeless situations that you neglect the darlings of your hearts and the apples of your eyes. For Smith said, what many preachers have learned far too late is they're too busy saving the world and losing their family. That's not a good thing. Not for a preacher. And not for any father. Not just preachers. You see, daddies do a lot of good things. They work hard. They provide good things for their, for their sons, for their daughters, for their wives, for, for those who are around them, to help others. And, and we do so much good. But folks, daddies in particular, be careful to be fully involved in the life of your family, especially your children, as they're growing up. Don't make that mistake. Paul says... I was not only willing to share the gospel with you, but I wanted to share my whole life with you. Next on our list, as we think about Paul and what he says about perhaps being a father, is we see that he portrays a man who is a good example. A good example. Again, 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 9 and going through verse 11, just listen to the words. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil... We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel. You are our witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers, for you know how, like a father with his children. And then he goes on, we'll read that in just a moment. But, but notice what he says. He says, you remember, you know, you are witnesses. He says, We were an example to you. Have you ever wondered why King David had so much problem, so much trouble with his own children? Just think about that. Here's a man after God's own heart. The Bible describes him in that way. God Himself describes David as a man after my own heart. But yet, David had a lot of family problems, didn't he, with his own children. Have you ever wondered why he had so much problem with his own children? Well, think about it just in a couple of terms. How could he really say anything to Amnon when he sexually defiled his own half-sister when David himself had sexually defiled Bathsheba? and Set that example before him. Sort of makes it a little harder, doesn't it? How could, how could David really reprimand Absalom for plotting the murder of his half-brother Amnon when David himself had plotted the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband? You know, we could go on and deal with that, but for sake of time this morning, those two should suffice to help us understand the power of an example. David, though he was a man after God's own heart, in some way set a bad example for his children after him and perhaps paid the price. You know, often the only thing that I can think of that's more powerful, that has more power than God's Word is an example. God's Word can say it, but if mama or daddy in particular is not living it, That tells the child loudly and clearly, well, God might have said it, but my daddy who is, in my eyes, my hero, he doesn't have to live by it. And so that example overcomes the power of God's Word. Think about that one for a little while this morning. But as we think about Paul, he was a man who portrayed a good example toward those whom he loved. You know, if a father doesn't want his son or daughter to drink beer, then he better keep it out of the refrigerator, hadn't he? If a father doesn't want his son or his daughter to, let me just say it like we'd say it down here in Alabama, if he don't want him to cuss, then he better watch his own words, right? If a father doesn't want his son or his daughter to lie or cheat, then he better be an honest person himself. If a father doesn't want his son or his daughter to grow up to be a half-hearted Christian, then he better be a dedicated Christian himself. Doesn't guarantee. There are no guarantees, but you know that example? It's powerful. It is powerful. Well, next on our list, before we run out of time, Paul portrays a man who teaches his children the Bible 2 Thessalonians 1st Thessalonians rather, chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 for you know how like a father with his children we started that verse a minute ago how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory how do we know how to walk in a manner worthy of God how do we How are we called? We're called by the gospel. Paul would tell these same people that. But as we think about what he says here, I was constantly teaching you to do these things. He was teaching them God's word. Genesis 18 verse 19, God made the statement about Abraham that he would direct his children after him. He would teach them the right things. And he did. Sometimes the worst child abuse of all is to slowly murder the eternal soul by withholding the spiritual food that's found only in the Bible. Strong word, isn't it? To murder the soul. Fathers, don't withhold it. Teach your children God's word. As we close this morning, I want to close with a poem or two. This particular poem is titled Introspection. I do not know the author. But it goes like this. To get his goodnight kiss, he stood beside my chair one night and raised an eager face to me, a face with love alight. And as I gathered in my arms the son God gave to me, I thanked the lad for being good and hoped he'd always be. His little arms crept around my neck and then I heard him say, Four little words I shan't forget, Four words that made me pray. They turned a mirror on my soul, On secrets no one knew. They startled me, I hear them yet. He said, I'll be like you. There's another poet who wrote these words. If this young child grows to be 25 or 103, if he grows as tall as the tallest tree, what kind of child will this child be? If this young child grows to be a man just like the one he sees... If he grows to be just like me, what kind of child will this child be? Powerful, powerful words. As a father this morning, do you need to obey the Lord? Maybe you're here and you've never become a Christian. You've never put your Lord on in baptism to have your sins washed away. Then why not do that today? What's keeping you from doing that? What's holding you back? Maybe this morning that you have become a child of God in the past as a father, but father, do you need to rededicate your life to the Lord? Are you setting the right example before your child, teaching him what he needs to do, what he needs to be, what he may very well be when he's your age? If you're here this morning for whatever reason, not just fathers, but anyone who might need to respond to the Lord's invitation, why don't you do it right now? As together we stand, as we sing. Just as I am.
1: We are glad to have each and every one of you here with us this morning. Uh, Do want to, of course, invite you to be back with us this evening. Uh, We will have service at 5 p.m. Hope that you will join us then. Uh, Do want to make one quick announcement for our youth. Um, Tonight we will be having a a game night for our 7th through 12th grade uh, after service and dinner will be provided. And then tomorrow night we're going to have uh, one of our first for the summer, what we're calling Monday Night Ministries. And this particular... this particular night will be for all ages, uh, as young as, as you would like, all the way through our 12th grade. Uh, and We'll be meeting at 6 p.m. here at the building. We will have a, a devotional specifically for our younger ones, uh, for, for the younger age. And then we'll, after that, we'll have some activities and we'll have dinner as well. Uh, we'll be having pizza, and we ask that you bring uh, $5 for that. Um, again, hope that you will join us tonight. We'll have one more song, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer. Every time
2: I kneel to pray, I open up my heart to the Lord.